And so here's King Ahaziah, because he's rejected the truth, he believes a lie, and that's what happens to people. They're convinced they're right. Why? Because they've rejected the truth. It's a biblical principle. Runs all the way through Scripture. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a message entitled, Making Spiritual Decisions, part of our biographical study of the prophet Elijah. Our text comes from 2 Kings chapter 1, in which King Ahaziah sustains a major injury from a fall and then seeks an answer from the god Beelzebul as to whether he'll recover. In the account, we see Elijah confront the king's men, asking the question, and I'm paraphrasing here, Is there no God in Israel such that Ahaziah seeks answers from the God of the flies? As we pick up, Dr. Brogy looks at a similar situation that occurred when Jesus was walking the earth. So Ahaziah sought Beelzebub. He sent messages whether or not he's going to recover. Now, to fully understand his decision, I want you to fast forward with me eight centuries to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. So hold your finger here and go to Matthew's Gospel. There are four Gospels written in the New Testament, not because God has nothing to say, but because he's writing to four specific audiences with different objectives. And Matthew's Gospel, of course, is written to Jewish Christians to give them a polemic on how to make a defense for the hope that's within them. Eight centuries later, Beelzebul shows up in Jesus' day, and Matthew records an event that surrounds the mention of his name. Did you find it? Matthew chapter 12, look at verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. A blind, dumb, demon-possessed man is healed. It's a triple miracle. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? See, it was prophesied by Messiah that the very miracles he did, Messiah would do, not to mention he would set the captive free. And so these people are stunned. This son of a carpenter from Nazareth had done the kind of miracles that Messiah was prophesied to do. This can't be the son of David, can he? That's one of the messianic titles given in the Old Testament for Christ. They were saying, could this be the promised Messiah? Could this be a fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7? One of David's descendants has finally come, the one we've been praying for for centuries and centuries, that he is here to come and to take over our nation. But of course, the Pharisees, they have the same information. They analyze the facts, and they come to a different conclusion. Look at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul. Remember, that's the Greek term for the Hebrew word Beelzebub. He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Notice how they describe Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, please note, they don't deny the miracles had taken place. They just refuse to believe and affirm that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they persist in their unbelief. They assert that the power operating in the Lord Jesus is the ruler of the demons, the devil himself, Satan himself. They come to a far different conclusion than Nicodemus did that we studied a few Wednesday nights back. And I find it rather pathetic in our day that there are people who don't believe that there's a real devil, much less demons. 
There's coming a day when they will discover just how real it all is. Look at verse 25. They accused Jesus of sorcery, and knowing their thoughts, said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. That's an axiomatic tr- truth. It's true in any nation. If there's a civil war within, if the disruption persists and pursues long enough, there will be disunity, there will be chaos, and there will ultimately be collapse. Any kingdom, any city, any house. And Jesus takes that principle out of the political realm and he applies it to the spiritual realm here in verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? For Satan to cast out demons would amount to casting out himself since the demons do his work. So Jesus is asking the Pharisees to explain how Satan benefited by this work. How could Satan benefit by the miracle I just did? Your thinking is very distorted. He's pointing out how illogical and how impractical their thinking is. Verse 27, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons... By whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Jesus is reminding them of contemporary Jewish exorcists. Not every Jew was an unbeliever. Understand there are many Jews who affirmed Jesus as Messiah on the day of Pentecost and the week that followed where some 25,000 people believe every single one is a Jew. And so there were Jewish exorcists who cast out demons, and the Pharisees themselves taught that they should thank God for such people who had been given that gift. And so he's just reminding them, for this reason, since this is what you teach, you're a bunch of hypocrites. Your own sons will judge you. You're not practicing what you're preaching. By the way, Jesus never denies that Beelzebul is the ruler of the demons. He only denies the false conclusion that they make. Look at verse 28. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now understand that when Christ emptied himself, he never ceased to be God. And so this so-called Bethel church that is not a church at all, who says that when Jesus took on our humanity, he gave up his deity, that's heresy. And that's why we will not play their music and we will no longer play Hillsong because Hillsong is closely now affirming Bethel. Jesus never gave up his deity when he emptied himself. He laid aside his divine prerogatives, but he never gave up his deity. So when Wesley said he emptied himself of all but love, please understand, give the man credit as you read the rest of his hymns. He affirmed that Jesus was God in human flesh, but Jesus chose not to live out of his deity, but to live in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. And so he is saying, listen, if I drive out demons by Satan then I would certainly not be offering the people of Israel the kingdom of God, but that's precisely what I am doing. The kingdom of God has come upon you. And so he irrefutably proves what what kingdom he is for in verse 29. Notice. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? 
By driving out demons, Jesus is proving that he is greater than Satan because he was able to enter the man's house. That is, he was able to enter into Satan's realm of the demonic and take away the spoils of victory. Listen, before a robber can go and rip off a bank, he has to go in. He has to have sufficient power. He has to be able to subdue the guard in order to take over the so-called strong man there in the bank. And the inference here is that if he could enter into Satan's stronghold and deliver people who are captured and under Satan, then he's stronger than Satan. He goes into one of the houses of Satan to a person who's under demonic control. Listen to how Luke records this event. Luke 11, it says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. So Jesus makes it very clear by the illustration that Satan is the strong man. He proves that he is stronger than Satan and that he enters into the house, into the body of a man and casts the demon out, proving that I am stronger than he. And so the Lord refutes the false explanation of the Pharisees. And so he invites the people not to listen to them, but to make up their own decision. Look at verse 30. He says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who is not gathered with me scatters. The same is true today. If you're not with Jesus, you're not for Jesus. You're against Jesus. And if you're not gathering for his kingdom, then by your neutrality, you're scattering. But there is no in-between ground in the kingdom of God. You're either a part of it or you're not. Now, don't get lost. We're talking about Beelzebub in Greek, Beelzebub in Hebrew. This demon god in Christ's day, and the nickname for the Jewish people for Satan was Beelzebub in Jesus' day. And while we're here, when we're talking about Beelzebub, it's a question that comes up repeatedly, one of the most asked questions and Nearly 30 years I've done the Bible line, and it's a question about what follows. Look at verse 31. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Now, stop right there for a moment. On occasion, I meet unbelievers who feel like they've done something so wicked, so vile, so unrighteous that God just can't forgive them. But Jesus said, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. In the parallel account, Mark 3, 28 says, all sin shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, all means all, but there is one exception, and he now tells us. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, the question begs, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and what is that one sin that God cannot forgive? And I think the answer is found by basically asking another question. Why could God forgive blasphemy against, not forgive blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and at the same time be able to forgive blasphemy against the Son? Why is it worse to speak a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit than to speak a blasphemy against the Son? 
I mean, is one member of the Godhead afforded more honor than another? Why the distinction between blaspheming the Son and blaspheming the Spirit? Now, Jesus taught that you could speak a word against the Son of Man and be forgiven. But to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is an unforgivable sin that cannot be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. Now, understand that the difference is between the difference in ministry that God the Holy Spirit has and that God the Son came to bring. He came, the Lord Jesus, to bring a ministry of redemption, whereas the Holy Spirit comes to give us a ministry of illumination. Jesus died to redeem us, and many are ignorant of what he did, such that even when he is on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. But when a man blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, he is ignoring his ministry of illumination because Jesus said he would come to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And these Pharisees, on an earlier occasion, had come to the conclusion, Jesus is not the Christ, he's not the Messiah, and so they blasphemed the Lord Jesus, they slandered his name. Jesus said that could be forgiven. But right now, right before their eyes, a triple, powerful, convincing, miraculous work of the Spirit through the Lord Jesus is done, and they attribute it to the devil. They were not only rejecting the witness of God the Father that he gave about the Messiah through the prophets, and we see them do that in the Gospels. They are not only witnessing the testimony about the Lord Jesus who presented himself and claimed to be the Messiah, now there's only one witness left, and it's God's Spirit. And there's no further witness that they can go to. And so they are committing an unforgivable sin. And Jesus said, it shall not be forgiven them, either in this age or the age to come. It is an eternal sin. Now blasphemy by its very nature is a slander against God. And again, even extreme slander against Jesus can be forgiven. But in this context, and I need to contextualize it, just remember that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in this context involved attributing the power that was operating through the Lord Jesus to the devil himself. Now understand, before the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit revealed the Messiah externally. How? Through the miracles that he performed. But now, since the day of Pentecost, he reveals himself internally as he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so, when the testimony of the Lord Jesus is fully and finally rejected, they are basically saying, God's Spirit didn't do this. The devil did it. And they are slandering the Spirit, and they are calling the Spirit of truth a liar. Now, while some will argue today that it's impossible to commit the sin of blasphemy against the Spirit, and it is certainly, and all would agree on this, it's impossible for a true child of God to commit this sin. But the question is, can it be committed by an unbeliever? And um, they would say it's impossible because you cannot totally replicate the situation where Jesus is physically here on the earth, where the Spirit of God is operating through them. So it's impossible for this sin to be repeated today. And all I would say is that, listen, while he is not physically present here today, the Spirit is still working today, and he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And you can mistreat the witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart when you continue to ignore him. 
Listen, none of us here today who are born-again believers can commit this sin. But if you've not come to genuine faith, and there's a lot of people who think they have, but they haven't. But if you've not come to genuine, genuine faith, the only way you can come to faith because there's none who seeks God, not one, is the Spirit of God to first work in your heart. He creates the interest, whether you're a little child or you're a grown adult. He opens your heart, and he shows you what your need is that you're a sinner, and you can shut him out and take your mind and just block him out, and you can resist him. Now, some of my Reformed friends say, you can't resist the Spirit of God. Yes, you can. Listen to that preaching deacon Stephen. He's preaching to his Jewish brethren, and it's recorded to us just before they stone him to death in Acts 7.51. You men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Listen, if the Spirit of God is speaking to you, and I know he's speaking to someone, whether they're in this building or one of our other buildings or you're live streaming, you know you've not received Christ, and he's speaking with you, he's pleading with you, and you just put him off and put him off. He says, as he wrote in his word, today is a day of salvation, and you say, not today. You do that long enough, and you will cross a line because you will basically, by your lack of decision, be calling him a liar, and you will commit an unforgivable sin. Why? Because he will not always strive with man. That's what the Scripture says. Joseph Addison Alexander, when he was at Princeton Theological Seminary, back in the 1800s when it was still a Bible-believing seminary, obviously it is not today, he wrote these words, there is a time we know not when, a point we know not where that marks the destiny of men to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. And if you cross that line, Jesus said in the parable of the sower, the devil has given permission to snatch the seed that they may not believe and be saved. Please listen to the Spirit of God. Don't keep putting him off. You can be 13 or you can be 93, and you can reach a point where you've crossed the line known only to God. This is not willful ignorance. This is willful resistance and so Jesus cannot say to such a person, Father, forgive that person. They don't know what they're doing because they know what they're doing. And it's a terrible, awful thing to do. Now, don't miss the reason why we came to Matthew's gospel. I came here to show you that 800 years later, the worship of Beelzebul was still very much in play and that there was demonic power associated with it in Jesus' day, just like there was in Isaiah's day. You see, King Ahaziah saw this wicked man that there was some kind of power with this Beelzebub. You say, well, how is that possible? How can an idol have any power? 
flower. It's nothing but a piece of stone or rock or paper mache. It's just a crafted fly in his day. There's no real power in it. And on the one hand, the apostle Paul would agree with you that idols are nothing in and of themselves, but they do, the scripture teach, represent a working ground for demons. When Paul addresses the subject in 1 Corinthians 10 of meat that is sacrificed to idols, he says this, what do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, not at all. It's just a piece of stone and metal and glass. But nonetheless, he shares his concerns He says, no, but I say that the things which the Gentiles, the pagans, sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Paul is saying, listen, as far as an idol is concerned, it's nothing. It's not anything. It's just a a piece of dead matter. However, an idol can become a working ground for demons in which to express their life. And so here's King Ahaziah, because he's rejected the truth, he believes a lie, and that's what happens to people. They're convinced they're right. Why? Because they've rejected the truth. It's a biblical principle. Runs all the way through Scripture. And so while that little physical fly could not speak, there are the prophets and the priests that represented Beelzebub, and they would speak on his behalf. And so he wants to know the future. Here's this king. He should have been leading the 10 tribes of Israel into righteousness, but he's leading them into wickedness. He should have been leading them towards the Lord. He's leading them astray. And so by trying to discover through one of the prophets of Beelzebul what his future is concerning his health, he is entering into a wicked realm. It is a disastrous decision. By the way, let me ask a question. Where do you go first? As a Christian, when you've got a major decision. Now, I'm sure none of us would agree with this wicked king. We would condemn what he did, going to some false god. But that's not always the issue for the believer today. Sometimes we go to other people before we go to God. Sometimes we look for other solutions before we turn to God. While you have your finger in 2 Kings... Uh, turn over to Second Chronicles. Would you Second Chronicles chapter fourteen? Second Chronicles chapter fourteen. Right after Kings is First and Second Chronicles, and go to Second Chronicles fourteen. Here in Second Chronicles fourteen, we read about King Asa, who was king over the two southern tribes known as Judah, and he was one of the good kings during the time of the divided kingdom. Let me read to you, beginning in 2 Chronicles 14 and verse 2. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God, for he removed the foreign altars in high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the ashram, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was undisturbed under him. Now remember, 20 kings in the north, 20 in the south. All 20 in the north are wicked. Of the 20 southern kings, only eight are good kings, and Asa is one of these good kings. He would never consult a false god. But on this occasion, he did something that displeased the Lord. His reign was marred by the fact that he failed to trust God for his help in this situation when he got sick. And so after two years of disobedience, he dies. Now look at chapter 16. Turn over a page, chapter 16, 
and look at verse 12. The chronicler records for us. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. I guess he needed a podiatrist. His disease was severe. That is, the infection or whatever he had was going to kill him. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. Now, understand, God's not opposed to people going to physicians. He, he gives certain people with that skill, with that ability. Most of you know that Luke, who wrote the gospel that bears his name and gave us the Acts of the Apostles, he was a medical doctor, and he personally served the Apostle Paul. Paul didn't just heal himself. God did miracles for specific reasons in, in specific, specific settings. And Luke was someone that God used to help Paul. So the problem with King Asa was not that there was a doctor, but he was putting his trust in the doctor. How many of us, when we get sick, we think doctor first and not God? How many of us, when we get sick, the only thing we want is the prescription? Here's the prescription. I got what I need. I don't really need to pray about it. See, that's kind of what Asa was doing. Now, I don't endorse the divine healers of our day because there are certain unique gifts and abilities that 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says only an apostle can do. These guys are scam artists and rip-off artists, and they are dragging down the name of the faith. But I do believe that God can heal divinely, and sometimes he may use a physician, he may use medicine, and sometimes he may heal without medicine. But the problem with King Asa is he sought the physicians to the exclusion of seeking God. And so the next verse says, So Asa slept with his fathers, having died in the 41st year of his reign. You see, where you go first reveals a whole lot about your spiritual life. Some of you have got a big decision to make. And you haven't fallen on your knees and on your face and said, Lord God, I need your wisdom, I need your help, I need your direction. I don't want to just go to business experts or this expert. I need you, Lord, through whatever vehicle you want to use to make it happen. And so the wickedness of King Ahaziah is revealed when he sought Beelzebul for an answer on that day when he falls through this lattice. So that's Ahaziah's disastrous resolution. And we can learn from his mistakes. Secondly, there on your outline, I want us to think about Elijah's divine reply. Elijah's divine reply. Now again, as we studied in verse 2 of 2 Kings chapter 1, when Ahaziah fell through the lattice and became ill, he sent messengers and said to them, go inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. And so God sends his messenger, Elijah, to intercept them. Notice verse 3, but the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now, God asks the question three times. I have it underlined in my Bible. He asked it in verse 3. He asked it a second time in verse 6. He asked it a third time in verse 16. Three times in this short narrative, he asked the question, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? When Ahaziah was inquiring of Beelzebul regarding his fate, he was implying by application that there was no God in Israel. 
and in so doing, he made a critical mistake which essentially doomed him. To listen again to today's message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ELI8. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you'd like to join us in growing people in their walk with Christ, click the Give button on the STS app or on the website searchthescriptures.org or call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our message, Making Spiritual Decisions. Join us then as we search the scriptures.